Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the, same, in the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slander's accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken, away, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild ways of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesies about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts that they have done in the ungodly way and of all harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Yvette. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world 
In his hands he's got the whole world. In his hands he's got the whole world in his hands. That's Jude's point. In this whole letter, that is Jude's point. God's got the whole world in his hands. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's echoing in the background of this whole letter. That's where Jude is driving us to. We're entering a, a letter, the last in this series of, of little letters. Uh, these little letters that we often jump past or, or kind of skim over or just take a verse or two out of. Quite honestly, I, I've read this letter many times before as I'm reading through my, my scripture reading plans, but, but it's really just the last two verses I mostly pay attention to. That, that great blessing that's in this passage that the church historic has used time and time again. But this passage is rich. This letter, like the other ones that we've read, has way more in it than, than we're going to be able to cover here this morning. It is layers and layers of meaning and ideas and images. I, I would love to sit down and, and just listen to Jude talk sometimes. I feel like he's kind of a poet or a, a gospel preacher. He just has this way with words and descriptors in here. It's wonderful to listen to. So I'm going to encourage you, even though we're going to highlight just a few things, to spend some time with this text, read it again, and if you don't understand something, Find a commentary or come ask me. I'll point you to some commentaries. It's a good text to be in. The text really starts with what is a, a perfect storm that's happening for the people at that time. Let me just highlight something. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. In other words, Jude saying, I really wanted to write a big, joyful letter. One that, that was celebratory about God's salvation and how good God has been to us. I wanted to do the God is good all the time, all the time. That's what Jude wanted to write. And instead he said, whoa, but there's so much going on in the world today. There's so much coming against us. I've got to write a different letter. Those things that were coming against them, the best we can understand, this letter is probably written somewhere in between 60 and 65 AD. It's about the same time that this, the letter to 2 Peter is being written. So they're, they're kind of the same time. There's some similar themes. And, and one of the things they're encountering in the church during this time is Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's been 30, 35 years. All right, some of us are starting to get the gray hair, wondering when's he coming back. In fact, when you listen to some of the other letters written around this time period, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians as well, are kind of this general area, some of the things that are coming out is, is there are people who are, who are just going and, and they're finding a, a hilltop to sit on. And they're sitting down on the hilltop and they're going... Okay, Jesus, any day. And he doesn't come, and so at night they go into town and they find some other Christians and they say, can you take care of us? 
we thought he was coming back today and he didn't and we don't have food and we don't have clothes. They're just trying to figure out what does it mean that Jesus said he's going to come back and it's 35 years later and he hasn't come back. What do we do? So there's this sense that's growing within in the early church of now what? Maybe it's going to be longer than we thought it was. Maybe we're going to have to figure out how we do this, this life thing until we die, not just until he comes back. And there's a sense coming in of, of some anxiety. Can you feel that? His promises were great. His promises were true. Rah, rah, rah. These promises are a little harder to cheerlead when it seems to take so long. And they're struggling. There's something else that's starting to happen during this time. In this, this period of the early 60s is, is really the time that, the, that some of that first uh, heavy Roman government persecution starts against Christians. And so there, there's wondering going on. Not only is Jesus seeming like he's slow in keeping his promises, but the world around it is getting less and less friendly to be a Christian in. In fact, there's, there's rumblings happening of some people who are being killed for their faith. That's happening in this time period. And so it's not just anxiety because God doesn't seem to be keeping his promises on our timetable. It's an anxiety coming because the world around us doesn't seem to want us. And in fact, they seem to be turning against us. God, where are you? Are you going to save us from this? Are you going to rescue us from this threat that's around us? Do you feel the anxiety building among them? And then, to make matters worse, both Peter in his letter and Jude in this one start naming the fact that there are people who have come as part of the church who are disrupting the life of the church. They've entered into the church and, and Jude uses the language of ungodly. In fact, it's the most common word in this, this letter. It's the ungodly people doing ungodly acts because of their ungodly desires and their ungodliness. I want to say at that point, get a new word. But he's hammering it home and saying this just is completely opposed to what God's people are supposed to be doing and who they're supposed to be. And they're part of the church. And they're disrupting the church. And it's making us feel like the faith that we once had, this joyous, celebratory faith, this, this trust in God, God's slow. The world's against us, and even the church is falling apart. It ain't what it used to be. It's messed up. What are we going to do? Jude goes on to, to talk a little bit more about those people who have come into the church, and that's really the biggest threat that he ends up spending time talking about. This letter mainly unpacks who are these ungodly people within the church. And Jude's pointing fingers saying, this is what they're like. By their fruits, you're going to know them. This is the behavior you're going to see. And he names two things at the start. The first is they pervert grace to justify their immorality. In some sense, they're saying God's forgiveness it's good, it's right, it's true, it's forever, it can never be taken away, therefore live however you want. 
do whatever you want. And the language of immorality here is really around sexual immorality. It's a, I'm going to live for my own pleasures and whatever I want to experience because God's forgiven me, so it's okay. Remember that passage in Romans? Paul's writing to the Romans and, and he says to them, because of grace, because grace is there, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound even more? Should we go out and commit more sins? Because if we commit more sins, then God's grace has to cover us. And he says in, in kind of this big, bold, exclamatory phrase, by no means. That isn't how we respond to grace. God's given us this grace so that we might have our lives transformed and changed and turned towards him. Not so that we can indulge in our sins all the more. And Jude's saying, folks, there's people who have taken that gift of grace that God has given us, that incredible gift of grace, and they're using it as an excuse to do whatever their heart and their bodies desire. And they take it one more step. They go on to say, Jesus isn't really sovereign and Lord. In other words, he's our Savior, he paid the price for us. We're good to go for eternity. We're in heaven. That's guaranteed. But he has nothing to do with the way we live our lives today. Some of you may recall there was a debate in the church that was back a couple decades, actually more than a few now. Back in the mid-20th century, there was a huge debate in churches around the world about is Jesus just Lord or is he just Savior, or is he Savior and Lord? It was a huge argument just over those words, and, and that argument really is not a new argument. Jude's pointing to it. There were people who said, Jesus, save me for eternity. How I treat my neighbor now doesn't matter. I'm going to heaven, and that's all that really matters. I can come in and say, praise Jesus, I'm going to heaven, and sing my songs on Sunday, and treat my neighbor however I want on Monday. Isaiah, this is how old this tension is. Isaiah at one point, chapter 58, people are coming before God and they're fasting and they're saying, God, why don't you hear us when we fast? And God's response is, because of how you treat your employees and the servants in your household the rest of the week. I'm not Lord of your life. How can your worship be pleasing to me? And God continually in Scripture brings these two together to say, I'm the God who saves you, and I am the God who is Lord of your life. The way you live throughout the week needs to be in line with the salvation that I've given to you. They're meant to go together, never to be torn apart. And Jude is calling out the church in his day and saying, you've torn this apart. You've set the cross of Christ on one side, and you've said you can live however you want the rest of the week. That should not be. These two things have come together in this perfect storm, and it has upended the church. And Jude's saying, I wanted to tell you about how good God is. I'm having to write a letter reminding you of the basics of faith. Come back. Be strong in this space. 
I would love to say it's all back then and it has nothing to do with us today. That'd be good, right? (laughs) We got it together. They had it all wrong. Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and do not have the Spirit. Three things in there. And I think they kind of show up in our day and age too. These are the people who divide you, dividing God's people. One of the things that has been most heavy on my heart over this last year and a bit with the political conversations in the states, it actually isn't the result of the election. It's way Christians have talked to each other and about each other throughout the whole time. We've turned on each other. We've said that our allegiance to a political party in the states or to a political perspective has greater value in who we're going to associate with and in the value of people than our union in Christ. It's nothing new. I can remember being in a sanctuary once and we came out of worship, a wonderful worship service, and we walk out to what we called our gathering room and we get out there and one of the people said, I can't imagine how you can be a Democrat and still call yourself a Christian. And the elder who was standing right next to her had made it known many times that he voted for Democrats. And this dividing line became along political lines. Do you remember that passage we read out of Colossians earlier? And we're reading this passage, and out of Colossians it says, For in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, Scythian or barbarian, slave or free. It names all these things that people are using constantly to divide each other from each other. To say, my side's better than your side. It's as if saying the people who sit on the organ side of the church are more holy than the people who sit on the piano side. It's finding little things, anything arbitrary. Steve, you want to move to the other side? I'm just checking. (laughs) It's finding things that are arbitrary, things that, that we had no control over. Did you have control over where you were born, Jerry? No. It's saying, Jerry... You're Dutch, so you must be worth a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, see? It, it, we, we, attach things, we attach value for ourselves over against other people, over things we had no control over. And we say, because I'm this, you're less worthy than me. Now, hear it today around language of refugees and immigrants. If they come here, they're going to take all our jobs. I've heard it. Not just out there, in here. I'm fearful of them because they're different than me. They smell different. They taste, they, their foods taste different. I don't understand their language. And we start doing an us versus them, and we divide. Some of you may have recalled, in fact, I know some of you have shared stories of me that as you were immigrants here yourselves, And growing up here in the 40s and 50s and 60s, you were told you could marry a Dutch person, but you couldn't marry a Canadian. 
because somehow being Dutch was more important than being Canadian and more valuable than being Canadian and you couldn't trust Canadians regardless of whether or not they went to church, regardless of whether or not they followed Christ. We are a people who fall into these traps again and again of dividing ourselves again and again and splintering. You know what we celebrate this year? 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And as we celebrate that, and there are good things to celebrate with it, we also need to lament because we've used what was good to become a weapon to divide the body of Christ again and again and again and again. I had a privilege this week. Josiah and a student at Redeemer invited me to sit on a panel. And Josiah introduced the idea of this panel of saying, an Orthodox priest, a Catholic priest, a Reformed pastor, and a Pentecostal pastor, and it's not a joke, sat down together. (laughs) And he got us together as a panel, and we shared what does it mean to grow in intimacy with God. It was a powerful conversation for an hour and a half with a bunch of students there and talking with the students. And it was remarkable to me how much we had in common. In fact, the, the other, the Orthodox priests and the Catholic priests were saying things that I was like, I've heard this in our reform circles many times. We have so much more in common than we have different. And the struggle that Jude names back then is a struggle we still have today that we are a people who divide ourselves over against each other at the cost of the unity that God has given us in Jesus Christ. Follow mere natural instincts. Did you catch that part in here? They follow mere natural instincts. Part of the language that Jude is using here is saying they're all about their own pleasure in their own self-preservation. At another point, he compares them just to animals. And animals have a couple things on their mind. They have reproduction on their mind, and they have preservation of their self on their mind at the cost of whoever else is around them. They seek their own comfort and their own well-being. And Jude's saying there are people who have come into the church, ungodly people, and their character is that they're all about themselves. They're not there for anybody else. And we can do that as well. We take our Christian faith and we take this incredible gift that was given to us and we hold it to ourselves and we keep it to ourselves and we treasure it for ourselves. We never think about the implications of that faith and what God's doing for other people. We're selfish with our faith. We're often selfish with our time. I hear the phrase, I just don't have time. All right, I say the phrase, I hear it out of my own mouth. I'm guilty of this. I don't have time to go downtown and hang out with Josh on the streets with with people downtown. I make justifications on lots of Friday nights. I've gone down once with them this year. But lots of other Friday nights I could, and I get to Friday night, and I'm like, "Ah, I don't feel like it. I just want it for myself. I'd rather sit at home, watch a movie, have a restful evening and enjoy. And I don't think beyond myself. It's not that we don't need rest. Hear me clearly. We do need seasons of rest and space of rest. And there are some long seasons 
that, that we need in life where we're not going out and serving, but we're sitting quietly and receiving. I'm addressing the pattern of our thinking, though. I just need to watch my show. Well, I need to binge watch. I've got the whole weekend set aside to watch the whole series that Netflix just released. And that's what I'm going to do. Or I, I need just to spend my time with myself because I, I really haven't had that time. And I, there's some books I want to read, and I'm just going to spend time reading that. And it's my time, after all. And it's not just my time, it's my money. And, and it's mine, it's mine. And we fall into this trap of looking at everything that we have and every resource that we have as being ours to possess and ours to bless ourselves. And Jude's saying, no. The very reason you exist is so that you might express the love of God and God's faithfulness to the rest of the world around you. We in the church fall into this temptation and we're in a culture that values this. Living for yourself, looking out for number one. It's a challenge for us. And then he adds, and they do not have the spirit. And that's harsh. <laughs> if the other things weren't already pointing, he's, he's saying they don't even have the Holy Spirit. In other words, their lives aren't being transformed. They're the same as they were 10 years ago. The same, same attitudes, the same behaviors, the same treatment of other people. There's nothing in their life that is being transformed by the grace of Christ. They're living exactly as they were when they were in the world and apart from Christ. And now that they say they've come to Christ, nothing has changed. Where's the fruit of the Spirit? How's it growing? How's it transforming us? How is the Spirit alive within us? And it's a hard question. And we've sat at this point for a while because these are the troubled waters that are around us and Jude could very well be writing in our day and age. There is persecution happening in the world. The world is falling apart in some places. And to be a Christian in some places is deadly. You can die for it. And there's trouble in the church, and the church seems to be splintering in multiple places. It's happening. And we ourselves know that we have not grown. And we know that all the finger-pointing we want to do at the world around us, if we're honest and still before God, we've got growing to do in our own hearts. About this point in reading the text, I was like, Jude, give me a good word. <laughs> Change the channel. It, 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 doesn't, it kind of feels like you, you read this text and, and Jude's one of those kids on a playground that has the little magnifying glass and we're the little ant. Like the focus of the heat of this passage is just on us. Like give us some relief. There's grace in here. Anybody notice how the opening of the letter starts? I had a prof, this is an aside, I had a prof who, who wrote a whole academic book on just the openings and the endings, those first two verses and the last two verses of all the New Testament letters. And, and it, it was powerful 
to read through parts of this book as he was explaining it because there is so much that we skip over because we're like, oh, that's just the opening of the letter. He's just saying hello. The people writing these letters are saying way more than hello at the start of them. Listen to these words. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. I highlighted that kept for Jesus Christ because that refrain actually shows up multiple times in the text. And he's saying to his audience, right from the beginning, you are kept by God the Father in his love in Jesus Christ. You're kept in Jesus Christ. The word phrase there, kept for, it's probably better translated as kept by. You are kept by Jesus Christ. And that word kept has the the negative implication. It it would be at times as if a, a king has conquered a foreign army and he has prisoners of war and he keeps them locked up. At one point in the text, he uses this word kept for talking about the disobedient angels who are locked up until the judgment day. God has kept them locked up. It's secure. It's grabbed onto. He ain't letting go. He's saying, I've got you that tightly. I'm holding on to you that tightly tightly. God has been holding on to them all along. And that's Jude's first word to them. Not one of condemnation, not one of judgment, not one of soul searching and admonishment. His first word to them is hear this. God is holding on to you. Shared it before. One of the powerful experiences for me in university was being in a a religion class at Calvin College and the prof started the class period by simply saying, what's the greatest truth? And we bantered and argued for half an hour. And he let us go. It was beautiful pedagogy. He did it right. And then at the end he said, no, the greatest truth is not something we hold on to. The greatest truth is that which holds on to us. And that, in a nutshell, is what Jude's saying. Jude's saying, God's holding on to you. He's keeping you. He's got you. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 That's what Jude's saying. Right from the start, recognize the grace of Christ. In the midst of this turmoil, even in the midst of the brokenness you're experiencing in your own heart, in your own life, in your own church, when everything seems wrong and God seems delayed, he's got the whole world in his hands. That's what he's saying. And then he comes back to it at the end. This is the powerful part of that that end piece. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling... In other words, he's not just holding you for eternity, he's holding you in your day-to-day living. He's got you when it's tough. He's got you when you feel like you're losing your balance and you can't stand up. He's holding you. He's wrapped his arms around you. He's the one who's not going to let you go. 
And so Jude, in the beginning and the end of this letter, he's doing a loud, God's got you. Don't forget it when the world seems against you. God's got you. Don't forget it when God seems absent or slow in keeping his promises. God's got you even when the church seems to fall apart. God's got you. He's got us because of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's able to keep us stumbling. He's the one who's saved us for eternity. He's the one who's sovereign and Lord over our life here and now. He is present. He is active. He is with us. God's saying to them, to us, I've got you. And because I've got you, this is a beautiful part of the grace. Because I'm holding on to you, you can keep yourselves in God's love. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life saying this is how you wait this is how you wait for Jesus to come back and make everything new this is how you wait for God to fulfill his promises not in anxiety and fear not in laziness and sitting out waiting for others to take care of you because God's going to come back in every day but in this space we wait for Jesus Christ scripture and in prayer going back again and again part of what Jude's saying there's a simple rhythm it's not a big extravagant thing I'm asking you to do or that God's asked us to do in fact it's a small thing that he's asked us to do remember God's love by building yourselves building each other up in the faith that you've been given spend time not on worrying about what's happening in the world around or worrying about why God isn't showing up or worrying about the state of the church. Spend time in Scripture together. Encourage one another with God's Word. Build each other up in God's Word because as you do that, you'll begin to remember and believe that God's got the whole world in His hands. And not only that, but pray with each other in the Holy Spirit. Come together in the Spirit. Pray together. Find times where you can sit with each other and pray for each other and over each other and next to each other and with each other and you can sit and be silent together in prayer. Scripture and prayer. Scripture and prayer. Because as we do those two things, we'll discover that Yes, they're keeping us in God's love, but more importantly, they're reminding us that God's love has been holding on to us all along. That God has not forgotten us. That God has not abandoned us. That God has not left us to our own. No. As we read Scripture and engage Scripture together, and as we pray together, we're going to learn and discover again and again and again. He's got the whole world in his hands he's got the whole world in his hands he's got the whole world 
in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Let's pray. We thank you for this incredible salvation you've given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, our Father, that you have freed us from our sins and that you have taken away the eternal punishment of hell and the danger of hell away from us, that you've rooted us in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Lord, it can be hard to continue following you. Even with that knowledge of our salvation, we struggle because we, we wonder how long you're going to be in keeping your promises. We have moments where it seems like you are absent and you've forgotten, Lord, that you've walked away. We have times where we feel the world has turned against us and against our faith and it becomes harder and harder to live it out. We have even times, Lord, where it seems your people are leading us astray and tearing your church apart. We know we're part of that too. We're sorry, Lord. We ask in the midst of all of this that you would root us in your word and in prayer with each other and your spirit. That you would build us up and, and remind us that you are keeping us, that we are in your hands. Help us to experience this by your grace. In Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, we pray. Amen. Invite us as a response to stand and sing together, Salvation Belongs to Our God.